to be back with you. I wasn't here last week. I spent last Sunday morning preaching at our old church in Batesville, Indiana, and they have two services there, 8.30 and 11, and I'm not used to that. And so in between services, my sermon notes got all out of order. They got totally mixed up. And I didn't know it until I had already started the sermon in the second service. So when I went to page two, I saw page seven. And I managed to hide it pretty well, but I was still frantically shifting papers uh, more than usual. So hopefully this morning uh, that won't happen. It's good to be back with you. And thanks to Craig for preaching. Now, one of the things that we like to do regularly at Prairie View is spend time in the Old Testament. And recently we've looked at some of the more obscure, forgotten or even neglected books in the Old Testament. Books like Judges last spring and even the prophet Nahum last fall. But today we start another quick study in the Old Testament. But this story that we talk about this morning is anything but obscure, forgotten or neglected. The story we're talking about is the story of King David. The story that's beloved by countless believers and even appreciated by many who are not believers. One commentator says of the story of King David, it's probably the greatest single ancient story of a human life evolving by slow stages through time, shaped and altered by the pressures of political life, public institutions, family, the impulses of body and spirit, and the eventual sad decay of the flesh. It's no wonder that the literary masterpiece that is the story of David has inspired so many countless books and plays, poems, paintings, and music. Michelangelo's sculpture of David, which you should see on the screen behind me, is considered by many people to be the single greatest piece of art ever created. But the life of King David isn't just some dramatic and at times humorous and entertaining story. There are lessons that we can learn from reading Dave's story today. We can read about God's character. We can learn about God's desires for the future. We can learn all of these things by seeing what God has done in the past. So today we focus on the rise of King David, his ascent to power. Next week, we'll read about David at the peak of his power and glory. And week three, we'll read about David's infamous fall. And then finally, in week four, we'll discuss his long term legacy. You know, to this day, people are fascinated with this whole concept of royalty. We see it when some of the most popular shows on Netflix revolve around kings and queens. We see it with the obsession that many people have with the royal family in the UK. But the truth is that the story of King David outweighs all of those other stories. Because David was a king who was truly, fully, actually called by God himself. And on top of that, God himself has given us the story of David in his inspired word. So open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll be skimming over much of 1 Samuel this morning. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as a church family. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to read your word. 
As many of us were watching the news last night, uh, we realize yet again that we live in a chaotic world. We live in a dangerous world. And so, Father, I pray that during this limited time that we have together on Sunday morning, that we would look to you as a source of peace, as a source of hope, as a source of encouragement and stability in a world that is always changing, in a world that is very scary. Father, thank you for how you're working in our lives, how you've done so in the past, how you're doing so right now, and how you will continue to work in the future. Thank you for this church, the privilege that we have to be here, uh, to call these people our brothers and sisters. Even though we are so different, we have a common faith, and I pray that you would keep us united. Father, be with every single person in this room. We all come here in different circumstances. Some of us are on top of the world right now. Some of us are seemingly hitting rock bottom. But I pray that you would speak to each of us through your word the way that we need to hear you, the way that you see fit. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ who died and rose and ascended and will return. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, before we meet David, there are two other key figures in the story that we should introduce. God used these men to shape the lives of his people just as much as he used David, albeit in very different ways. The first man we're talking about is Samuel. Following the chaos, the wickedness, and the violence of the judges, God appoints a prophet by the name of Samuel. Now, Samuel was a good prophet. He spoke on behalf of God to the people, and he spoke to the people on behalf of God. But Samuel made a big mistake. Later in his life, Samuel made his sons judges over Israel. But like so many of the judges before them, Samuel's sons were marked by wickedness and corruption. As a result of this, the Israelites decided they didn't want judges anymore. They wanted a king. While part of their reasoning was the poor leadership of Samuel's sons, the truth is that the Israelites also longed to be like the other pagan nations around them, which is never a good thing in the Old Testament. Samuel warns the people of the dangers of kings, the oppression and domination that kings often enact. God takes their desire for a king as a rejection of him, their one true king all along. But nevertheless, God gives the Israelites what they want. He assigns Samuel the task of anointing Israel's first king. But as we see more than once in the pages of Scripture, giving sinful people what they want just might be the worst punishment that God could ever dish out. And that brings us to our next figure, a man by the name of Saul. With God's guidance, Samuel anoints Saul to be Israel's first king. And Saul looks the part of king. He's tall, he's handsome, he's strong. Instead of jumping at the chance to rule over God's people, instead of accepting the calling, Saul tries to hide behind the baggage. But despite his initial hesitance, Saul's rule starts off on the right foot. He leads the Israelites to victory over their enemies. The people rejoice and worship God. But then it doesn't take very long for things to go south. Saul directly disobeys Samuel. 
He shows a lack of reverence for God himself by offering an unlawful sacrifice. Saul makes a rash vow that most gets his son Jonathan killed and leads many of the Israelites into sin. Saul disobeys yet again by refusing to destroy Israel's enemies like God told him to. So as a result, from the mouth of Samuel, God finally and ultimately rejects Saul as king over his people. We see the confrontation in 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Divination was the ancient practice of trying to manipulate God, which Saul is guilty of more than once. Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's shifting blame there. There's another guy in the Old Testament who did that, whose name was Adam. God, Eve gave me the fruit. I ate what she told me to eat. Verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. A new king is needed in Israel. Samuel rejects Saul's half-hearted repentance. His blame shifted. He's only sorry because he got caught. But who's going to be the new king? Well, why not Saul's son, Jonathan? Jonathan's a courageous man. He's certainly more godly than his father. And crowns do usually go from father to son in royal families. No, not Jonathan. This new king needs to be truly called by God. And he must be very, very different from Saul. That, of course, brings us to David. David came from a normal family. If anything, perhaps a respected and affluent family. He's the youngest of seven sons. And God does seem to like using younger siblings in the Old Testament. He does that with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Maybe God does this because it flies directly in the face of how the world worked in that time. If you're a younger sibling, you can use that to rub it in your older sibling's face, that God likes to use younger siblings. But while Saul is technically still on the throne, Samuel anoints David to be the next king. Ironically, the true king, David, 
spend some time serving in the house of the illegitimate king by the name of Saul. If you ever want to know the difference between Saul and David, look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. We read there. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. The biggest difference between Saul and David from this point forward in the story is that one of them has the spirit of the Lord within them and one of them doesn't. But from here on out, David skyrockets to fame and admiration. His rise is meteoric, to say the least. It all really starts when David defeats Goliath, the Philistine monster of a man that no one else in Israel would dare fight. While Saul hid amongst the baggage before he was announced as king, David leaves the baggage behind to defend God's name and defend God's people. Even Jonathan, Saul's own son, the one that many could argue was next in line to the throne. Even Jonathan grows to love David. At this point, the people are singing David's praises from the rooftops. It seems like he's on top of the world. But all the while, Saul grows bitter and jealous. He no longer seeks God at all. His rebellion only deepens. Saul becomes consumed with clutching whatever is left of his power, even if it means committing heinous acts of sin. He attempts to kill David more than once. He drives David out of the kingdom and pursues him furiously. Now, David has two opportunities to kill Saul, to get vengeance, to take the throne that is rightfully his by God's decree. But David does not take things into his own hands. He refuses to harm the Lord's anointed. David simply leaves his fate in the hands of God. And it's in these moments that David writes psalms. Psalms like Psalm 27, for example. As he's hiding from Saul, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. A few verses later, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And then he ends the psalm by saying, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. 
Wait for the Lord. Saul would not have written something like that. Because Saul was not not focused on his confidence in God. Saul was focused on his own insecurities. His own desire for power. Saul had no desire to seek the face of the Lord. Saul only cared about himself. We see that Saul and David are two very different kings. Now, eventually, even though David experiences much loneliness and pain and fear along the way, God comes through on his promise. Samuel dies. Saul is wounded in battle and ultimately takes his own life. David finally sits on the throne, and slowly but surely, God's people are united behind him. Now, of course, there's much more to the story than just that. It's far from over. I'd encourage you to take some time this week and read the book of 1 Samuel. It's 31 chapters. If you did four or five chapters a day, you could get it covered. There's also plenty more in David's story for the weeks ahead. Now that Saul is finally gone, David's off to a good start. But we're only just beginning. But for today, I'd like to go ahead and suggest a few lessons that we can take away from the rise of David. The first lesson, the first question that we can ask ourselves is that God's people really need a king. Well, the answer to that question is no. God was their king. However, God was also not surprised by their request. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, far before Samuel or Saul or David were twinkles in their mother's eyes, God laid down guidelines for what Israel should look for in a king, as well as what they shouldn't look for. We worship a God who is all-knowing. We worship a God who is sovereign. So he was not surprised by this development. It was not as though appointing Saul was some kind of accident. God knows exactly what he was doing. But one thing we can learn from this story so far is that it would be wise for us to remember that God is our one true king. Only he can rule perfectly and only he deserves our worship and our eternal loyalty. There's a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 12 when The Israelites have seen Saul make mistakes. They've seen Saul commit great sin. And they come to Samuel and they regret asking for a king. They realize the error of their ways. And we see the conversation in 1 Samuel 12, starting in verse 19. The people say, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. But Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The Israelites turned away from God and turned to Saul for deliverance, turned to Saul for profit, and yet Saul proved to be empty. And all too often, we believers today are tempted to worship 
fallen, sinful kings and rulers. We're tempted to look to them for our deliverance when the truth is that they are empty. Because in the big scheme of eternity, earthly kings cannot profit and cannot deliver. They might occasionally do some good things for God's people and God's world. And when they do, they deserve admiration. And they deserve an appropriate level of respect. But earthly kings and earthly rulers do not ever deserve our worship. Because in the big scheme of eternity, they cannot deliver. They cannot profit. In the big scheme of things, the only king, the only ruler who is not an empty thing is God himself. Now, another question to ask is, well, if Saul's a bad king, then what makes a good king? It's a common question in the Old Testament with lots of different answers. But one of the books that talks about it the most is the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, and chapter 16, verses 10 through 13, Proverbs 31, 1 through 9, we see answers to this question. We see that a good king is one who pursues wisdom and discernment. A good king is someone who loves the truth and speaks words of righteousness. A good king is marked by self-control and mercy for the suffering. A good king defends the poor and needy rather than trampling them. Saul is an example of what doesn't make for a good king. But thankfully, so far in our story at least... David is not like Saul, at least not yet. Another passage to consider would be Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. That's the parable of the wicked judge or the unjust judge. It's a parable where a woman comes to her local judge repeatedly asking for justice, asking for her, him to hear her case. And over and over again, the judge refuses. He shoes her away. He's got Better things to do with her time. Now, ultimately, that parable is about persistent prayer. And ultimately, Jesus is talking about a judge and not a king. But perhaps we can take Jesus's words and apply them here. Jesus says that a good judge is someone who fears God and respects man. Well, perhaps a good king at some bare minimum level is someone who fears God and respects man. That's what we should be looking for in our rulers, in our leaders. And then one final question. Will David be the savior king that Israel is looking for? Will he be the Messiah that everyone hopes he might be? Well, the answer to that question, again, is no. I've had several conversations lately with People who are opposed to the Christian faith. And I'll sometimes hear the argument of how bad some of the people in the Bible were. They will attack Christians for saying that, you know, all these people you look up to, all these people that you pretend are heroes of the faith, they're actually really bad people. If you read the story, they do wicked things. They lie. They commit adultery. They are guilty of all sorts of sins. Well, a good answer when that argument comes your way is to simply acknowledge that, you know what? It's true. 
Sometimes those people who we treat as heroes of the faith, people like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and even our boy King David that we're reading about right now. The truth is that they really aren't heroes after all. There's only one true hero in the Bible, and he comes a lot later than David. If David were the true hero, we'd be calling ourselves Prairie View Davidic Church. But instead, we call ourselves a Christian church. If David were the true king, then we'd have one of his crowns on our sign and on our building, but we don't. We have crosses. So I hope that gives you a clue into who we believe the real hero, the real king actually is. Again, Saul looked the part of a king, but his reign didn't end well. The truth is that even the best kings, and David has certainly been good so far, even the best kings sin, the best kings fail, the best kings fall from glory, and the best kings ultimately die. But our true king, Jesus, certainly didn't look the part. He didn't sin. He didn't fail. He didn't fall from glory. In fact, he voluntarily left his glory behind to die for sinners like us. But he did die. But the big difference is that Christ didn't stay dead. And it's thanks to him that we can become sons and daughters of God, that we can become sons and daughters of the king of the universe, that we can become sons and daughters in the one true royal family. The story of David points us to Christ, and we'll see even more of that in the weeks ahead. David was a good king. He had many wonderful qualities that we should admire. There's a reason people love the story of David. But the story of David challenges us and encourages us to look ahead to the story of Christ, the one true hero and the one true king. We'll continue reading the story in the weeks ahead and see all the more clearly how Christ is glorified. And how Christ is so clearly looked to in the stories of men like Samuel and Saul and David. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us your word, that there is so much here to read, that we never have any shortage of inspiration on what to read, that I never have any shortage of sermons to preach because your word is just so rich and so deep. It's unlike any other book that we have. So, Father, I pray that you'd be with us in the weeks ahead as we continue this story, as we learn more about a story that has been so beloved for so long. But I pray that we wouldn't just take this story on its own, that we would see what it points to. And this story points to the one person we came here to worship this morning, which is your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that the songs that we've sung, that the prayers that we've prayed, the communion that we've taken is not just building up for us, not just encouraging to us, but is honoring to you.
So, Father, be with us as we close out the rest of our service. Be with us as we prepare to go to the places that you've sent us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for this church. May we never take these gifts of your grace for granted. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.